Let us pray. Father, please would you take the uh, inadequacy of my words and my thoughts, take the uh, shortcomings of our listening, and override both so that we uh, see Jesus. Amen. Well, with the benefit of hindsight, we read the Gospels. So when it says Herod was out to kill the baby Jesus, we say, don't worry, we know how it ends. This is the chosen one. He's not going to die in chapter 1 of Luke. When we hear that he is on Lake Galilee and the winds are up, and these experienced fishermen are in fear of their life, we say, don't worry, he'll do something amazing. He'll calm the storm. And he does. And when Peter uh, uh, is asked, who do people say I am? He says, it's a no-brainer. Don't you know how it ends? He's obviously the Messiah. Well, Luke, when he was writing this, and the other gospel writers, they also knew the end of the story. But the wonderful thing, I think, about the way the gospels are written is that they take us through the journey with the disciples. So in chapter 1 and 2, we have the baptism, we have the birth stories. In chapter 3, we have Jesus baptised. In chapter 4, he's tempted and tested and prepared for his ministry. In chapter 5, he calls the team and selects them. In chapters 6 and 7, we then begin to see the unveiling of what Jesus is all about. One-to-one conversations, confounding orthodoxy and its leaders, inspirational teaching... Then we get to chapter 8, and he's more than just a one-to-one person because the storm is calmed. Just think about the wind that we're hearing around us. Who could possibly just say, calm down, calm down, and it happens? And the question then is asked for the first time, who is this man? And then after that, a lot of encounters with the people who are not the usual suspects in terms of being special to God. There's a prostitute, there's a demon-possessed Gentile, there's a ritually unclean woman, there's a dead girl. None of the usual suspects, each healed by his personal intervention. And last week we come to chapter 9. And chapter 9, the first unaccompanied mission of the twelve little Jesuses, about to spread the virus of the gospel throughout the world. And after that, feeding of 5,000 gate crashers as Jesus tries to have a debriefing with the disciples as to what had happened on their mission, 5,000 people come along and they're, they're fed a meal. And the unspoken question is growing louder and louder. Is there anything that this man cannot do? And then we come to today's instalment, which according to Mark and Matthew, took place in Caesarea Philippi, way to the north of Galilee, the centre of the pagan worship of the god Pan. And maybe Jesus chose that area because 
it was the least likely that he would be followed by uh, all those hangers-on who were interested in who Jesus was. And he says, what's the word on the street about me? And then he says, and who do you say that I am? And the Greek word is actually emphasised. How about you? Don't talk about me in general. What do you think? And Peter voices what others may have been thinking. You're the chosen one, the Messiah of God. And all the baggage that goes with that came out. The Messiah, military genius, scourge of the Romans, liberator of the oppressed, the writer of wrongs. It's not really surprising, is it, that Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he then told them about the tribulation to come. This is not going to be a victory march. This was going to be a long and difficult journey. And then, as it were, the culmination of this gradual revelation of who Jesus was comes the transfiguration, so called because it's the first time that the human Jesus gives a glimpse of the the fact, a physical glimpse, that he is God. In Matthew and Mark's version, it says his face shone like the sun. Just imagine looking into the sun. And there it was right in front, brilliant. And it says that his clothes were as bright as a flash of lightning, overawing. And it says that uh, uh, he was then talking with uh, Moses and Elijah about his departure. You know the word they would have used for departure in the Old Testament? His exodus. As if to say... Moses, you were a great man because you brought the people of Israel out of captivity. I'm going to do something for the whole world. Now, there are two questions I want us to ponder this, from this passage today. And I have to say, I'm, I'm not comfortable with them because I'm still working on them. This is work in progress. So I hope you'll, you'll uh, uh, just journey with me. And if the two questions that come up don't have an answer, that's because I'm still working on it. And uh, um, you work on it too, that's not a bad thing. The first question is this. If the early disciples' appreciation of who Jesus was was constantly expanding, should we expect that to be our experience too? Or is the revelation complete? The canon of scripture has gone to press. There's nothing more to know about Jesus because it's final. We've got the 27 books of the New Testament and we know all that there is to know about Jesus. No more revelations. Because the underlying message as we've gone through Luke's Gospel is that Jesus is saying, don't box me in. It may be label Sunday, but don't you give me a label because I'm bigger than that. Don't think that you've got me figured out, for I'm unpredictable. I'm full of surprises. To be defined is to be confined, and Jesus won't be confined. He says, you think I'm God's chosen one? Well, you're right. But I'm also a servant who's going to go through intolerable suffering. You think that I'm here 
focused for God's special people? Well, I am. But I'm also focused on the prostitute, on the outsider who's a a madman, on the child who's dead, on the woman who's ritually unclean. Think that my mission is to save souls? Well, you're right. But it's also to give 5,000 people a good meal. Don't box me in. You can put a jack in the box, but you can't put God in a box and just bring him out under your own control when you want to. So here's what I'm grappling with at the moment. Have I boxed God in? Have I boxed Jesus in? Have I felt that now that we've got scripture and we've got wise people who've told us, told us how Jesus works, that I know exactly how he will work? Have I put a limit on his way of working, on his love? Characteristic of Jesus is his love. And do I say, okay, that love can be expressed, but it can only be expressed in a certain way. So if somebody hasn't had the same sort of conversion experience that we expect of people when they become Christians, then there's no hope for God showing his love not only to them, but through them. Am I blind to seeing God at work in others because they're not of my persuasion? They don't do things the way I do. And here I'm thinking not only and this is where I'm still working on it, not only of the different strands of Christians, but of people who have no acknowledgement of Jesus in their lives. Is God, is Jesus capable of working through them and in them? If we were to read on in Luke chapter 9, we'd find exactly the same question being asked, and Jesus giving us perhaps a clue of an answer. In chapter 9, verse 49... Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he's not one of us. Echoes of Margaret Thatcher, eh? Not one of us and therefore can't be an instrument of God's love. And what does Jesus say? Do not stop him. He says, for whoever is not against you is for you. So here's the question I'm grappling with. Do I need more acceptance and less condemnation? Jesus, when he met the woman caught in adultery, gave us a clue. He didn't condone what she did, but he predominantly loved her. Now this can be quite unsettling really, because I think people do need to have the certainty that this is right and this is wrong. I've looked in the rule book and this doesn't work, so therefore, if it appears to work, it's not working. I must have misunderstood it. And you can feel a little bit, well, in in theological terms, a bit liberal if you're starting to think that God may do things that are outside orthodox expectation. But as soon as I say God only works through certain channels, then I put him in a box and I confine him and I diminish him. There's a, um, a, a, a hymn that was written in the uh, uh, 1800s by a man called Frederick Faber. The words are on the screen there. 
There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. Now listen to this. For the love of God is broader than the measure of our mind and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Now that was written by Mr. Faber who was a Church of England minister but by the time he wrote this he was a Catholic priest. He had decided that the truth lay more within the Catholic Church than in the Church of England. And so I'm wondering, should we still sing that song? Didn't he get it wrong? And yet there is a greatness in God's love which goes beyond the Church of England, goes beyond the Catholic Church. It goes beyond any limit we want to put on it. So that's the first question. And what's the so what to that? Well, please work that out for yourself. But maybe God is working in a way that we are not allowing him to show himself as being because we're actually confining him. And there's just as the disciples discovered new things about Jesus. So God wants us to do the same today. Okay, on to the second question. If... If you're satisfied with that answer, then you haven't got any quality of yourselves at all. (laughs) The second question is from our passage, and it's from verse 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Okay? Now, here's the question. What, in practical terms, does it mean for me to take up my cross daily? And how do I square this with Jesus' promise that he came to give me life in all its fullness? There's a contradiction there. Carrying the cross is not a pleasant experience. Jesus would have had first-hand experience of that. Did you know that when he was about 11, we're not sure in terms of the historical data, but it was when he was a youngster, possibly just going into his teens, there was a man called Judas the Galilean, who led a band of religious fanatics on a raid on the Roman armory at a place called Sepphoris. You know where Sepphoris is? Well, it doesn't exist anymore because it's been razed to the ground. It was four miles from Nazareth. So think about it. Between here in Windlesham or here in Farnborough, this raid took place. The uprising was crushed and some 2,000 rebels and sympathizers were crucified on the road to Sepphoris, which by that time had been burnt to the ground. He's mentioned, actually, in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, where uh, Gamaliel, who's one of the leaders of the Jews, is counseling against fighting uh, and uh, punishing Peter and the apostles for preaching about Jesus. And he says, look, you know, if this is of God, we shouldn't be in the way. But if it isn't of God, it'll be like Judas was. You know, he'll he'll have an uprising um, and he'll be put down. So let's not get involved in that. Well, in some respects, uh, it wasn't a successful, um, it wasn't a successful rebellion. In other respects, and we know about this today, it gave rise to nationalists who formed the Zealots movement. And even one of Jesus' own disciples was a Zealot. 
So it was having a powerful effect. During the life of Jesus and thereafter, it was the major concern amongst the nationalists that there would be a Messiah who would come and who would overthrow the Romans. And that led to the disastrous rebellion of AD 66 and then the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the, uh, 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 the Jewish nation. But that's another reason why Jesus didn't want others to say this is the Messiah because he would be labelled in a way that would just hinder the gospel and so they were told to keep it quiet. Okay, so we come back to we're told to take up our cross daily. We refer to this in life, uh, in life today. We talk about our little trials and it's a cross I have to bear. And if that's what it means, as a Christian, I should expect to have daily tribulation and trials. And if that's true, I'm not living the full Christian life because I know more days about uh, life in all its fullness than I do about trials and tribulations. So how do I match those two together? How do I square them? This is how I do it. The significance of carrying the cross is not the journey of carrying the cross at all. The significance of the carrying the cross is the destination to which it goes. So it's not the journey, it's the crucifixion at the end. It was a one-way journey for anyone who had to carry a cross. And what Jesus is saying is, I need you, me, to crucify yourself, the me first, the selfishness that is my natural instinct, and to do it every day. So Jesus is not saying, carry a heavy load. He's saying, put to death self-will, self-centeredness, and do it at the beginning of each day. A man must deny himself, in other words, to say, it's not me, it's Christ. I think that Paul had that in mind when he wrote to the Galatians. He said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So now it's a little easier to see how taking up our cross, self-denial squares with life in all its fullness. For when I forego my rights and my intention to do things that will give me satisfaction, that's when I find satisfaction. If I go for satisfaction in its own right, I just need more and more of it. If I get a kick out of something, a real thrill then it doesn't last for long and I want to do it again and again and I need more and more, it's like a drug. Whereas if I deny myself, if I let Christ have his way, then there's fulfilment and that shouldn't be a surprise because that's how we have been made. That's how God made us, not to live for ourselves, not to look after ourselves because he'll do that. And if we trust, that, trust him for that, then we will find fulfilment. So, 
Are you up for it? Are you ready to take up the cross? We're coming to elections, local elections soon, and you can either be somebody who is a passive supporter of a party and put your vote in, or you can be an active um, uh, uh, supporter who wants to convince others. Now, in the Christian life, the idea of just voting for Jesus doesn't work. He wants only people who are ready to deny themselves and to take up their cross. The only sort of Christian that meets the requirements of our faith is a radical Christian. And how are we going to do that? Well, for some, <clears throat> just as I'm speaking, it'll become obvious that there are things that you know that you've been uh, dedicated to doing because you want to uh, get the personal satisfaction out of them. And that that's time for you to put that aside, perhaps to, be, um, to give up a right that you have or to give up a pleasure that you have in order to give pleasure to other people. That's a really good way to get real satisfaction out of the thing because you've given it away. But for others, you may just say, well, I would like to start. I would like to know what it means to, uh, to take up my cross each day for me to die and for Christ to uh, uh, come into his own and for me to live the life of Christ. Well, if that's the case, just ask. What I'm seeking to do, because I heard this sermon before you did, because I was writing it, <laughs> is each morning to ask that I may take up my cross, that I may actually give up any selfish desire that there is and to follow Christ and allow his life to live within me. You may find it helpful, I do. Um, we've got the leaflets here of the, uh, the Guildford Diocese uh, transforming Lent and if you haven't got the details you can pick up a leaflet as you go. But just something to do, not over demanding, two or three minutes in the morning, no more than that, an email comes through to you with a meditation or a reflection. That could be a way in which uh, you start the idea of a crucified life. Okay, we must come to an end now, but I just want to ask myself, and why don't you listen to me as well, uh, ask myself, is there a connection between these two questions that I was asking? On the one hand... Jesus and his love being wider than we can conceive, and on the other hand, us denying ourselves and living a life for others in fulfilment of, uh, 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 of our promise to God. Well, I think there may be, and this is it. It's only a, a, a slim link, but there could be a link here. When we become practised in daily exchanging the old life for the life of Jesus, because that's what he calls us to, so we shall see more of him at work in other people than we ever imagined. And there's an added bonus that they too, in seeing us being Christ in the way we lead our lives, they too will expand their view of what Jesus means. So their preconceptions, their labels, will have to be rewritten because... They've seen Jesus at work in me. So there's a thought. There's a reflection. And maybe we should have some silence now just to allow that message to sink, sink deep. And if you want to die to yourself and you don't know how to go about it, then ask the Master and he'll show you.
just a time of quiet reflection and then Claire will take over the leadership again.